And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. This is the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast with your hosts, Michael Campbell and Greg Howell. Welcome to the Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast. I want to thank you all for coming and tuning in here. We are we are pretty excited. This is uh, episode is going to be kind of one of those episodes that brings together multiple minds. It's a melding of the minds here as we talk a little bit about uh, some of the different stuff that's come up here recently. If you listen to our last episode, we are looking at a particular uh, narrative, a particular group of people who have been talking about Adventism outside of, uh, of the Adventist denomination. And if you listen to last uh, last week's episodes, they have been taking, looking at a couple of different places. One of them is another podcast called Cultish. And we just wanted to kind of take a chance here to, to talk through some of those episodes, some of the ideas that are out there, and just look at the question, is Adventism a cult? Uh, it's a classic question that's come up a lot over the years. And I think as we kind of put our heads together on this one, uh, the, the larger details of this kind of come through, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So uh, guys, we're going to jump in here with our first episode. Absolutely. And just for those that may not have heard the last episode, I, and I'm your co-host, Michael Campbell, we've got Judd Lake, Dr. Judd Lake from uh, Southern Adventist University, longtime uh, history, religion, and prof there. And we've got Matthew Lucio, uh, the eminent uh, Lucio of Adventist <laughs> uh, history podcast fame. And so we just have a lot of fun together, as well as just talking through um, our Adventist past. I think the, the, the quickest place to start out, honestly, would be some of the different clips uh, that we've kind of listened through here, um, talking about the, the, obviously the bigger question of is Adventism a cult, but some of the bigger stuff that was also looked at specifically back in the 60s, 50s, uh, and some of the questions that came up surrounding a big book that caused a lot of issues called Questions on Doctrine. That was one of the things cultists yes. brought up quite a bit. So I thought we'd maybe start out there, uh, looking at maybe some of the Adventist leadership, what was going on behind the creation of this book, and uh, the discussions with the larger evangelical world through Walter Martin and uh, another guy, Barnhouse. So I thought we'd maybe start yeah. on that one. That seems like the best place. Yeah. Now, Greg, let me just set this up for our listeners. And I, I got some clips from the Cultist show, Perfect. so you don't have to. You're you're more than welcome to go over there. I did shorten some of these. I want to make that very clear to our listeners. Because sometimes, you know how we humans are. We ramble an answer on for three minutes, five minutes, six minutes, and we want to be able to respond to their claims here in a much more expeditious way. So I shortened some of these clips. You're going to hear clips from the Cultish podcast. They did four episodes on Adventists. And so these clips might be a little shorter, but you are more than welcome to go over to the Cultish podcast, listen to it or watch it. It's on YouTube yourself. And, and see these answers, the questions that they're asking for yourself. So you don't have to take our word for it. That's something we want to make abundantly clear throughout this episode is you don't have to take our word for it. Go watch it for yourself. So here yeah. we have. Uh, By the way, really yeah. quick, we're, and we're not trying to be exhaustive either. And because and, <clears throat> we want to move on with our podcast with other things, but we do <laughs> want to kind of be illustrative yeah. of some of the things that, you know, <clears throat> struck us as like, hey, we're listening to this. We're, we're historians, we're pastors, we're, we've been involved in the church and stuff like that. And although the church isn't perfect, of course, as of none of us are, but but we, you know, my my big thing was I didn't really resonate with some of those kinds of claims. And that's what we're trying yeah. to do is kind of like, okay, here's some of these claims and we want to kind of 
reflect in a meaningful, constructive way and say, hey, I think there's a little bit more to the story. Yeah, there is. There definitely is. In fact, some of us have done a little bit of work on QOD and questions on doctrine. And so when they tell the story, the history of this event, it sounds a little bit different to us because we know what happened. But anyways, here's how sure. one of the one of the guests on the these cultish episodes, there's two if you guys remember from our first episode, if you're just joining us, then I'll let you know. But there's two former Adventists that the cultish hosts are interviewing. One is Colleen Pinker, and she is giving this answer. She's explaining QOD. Here's what she has to say. So Walter Martin um, made arrangements to meet with Froome, but behind the scenes, and I think that this is where many things went off the rails that were not known at first, the Adventist organization were carefully handpicked the people who would meet with Walter Martin, um, prepped them, um, chose people who understood how to talk to non-Adventists, and set up a series of meetings. And Walter Martin, who was only 26 years old at the time, met with these older men who were rather experienced in dealing with the evangelicals, and the rest is history. That's That was the beginning. Okay. So she's talking about here, she's talking here about how Walter Martin met with some Adventist representatives to talk about his concerns, and he wants to know what Adventists believe about a number of topics. We call the Adventist side of this equation Frida. What does Frida mean? Well, you got uh, the initials, the acronym of, of the initials of the main people that were uh, participating. You got uh, Leroy Edwin Froome, so Froome, that's where you get the FR, you got... Um, uh, Roy Allen Anderson and uh, help me out, guys. And W. E. Reed. Reed. That's right, W. E. Reed. Um, three prominent church leaders, um, and so they kind of just merged the acronym of their letters. And uh, yeah, so you got uh, you got Frida, and uh, that's 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 your kind of um, representative body. And Froome was well known because he was reaching out, sending out lots of copies of his prophetic faith of our fathers and other books to church leaders trying to create more awareness of who Adventists were among other religious groups. Yeah. But I think what, what Colleen Tinker gets wrong here is the insinuation that this was some kind of Adventist plot that certain church leaders here, Frida were groomed because and chosen for this because they specialized in dealing with evangelicals and, and poor Walter Martin was young and uh, apparently impressionable impressionable gullible, right gullible, and gullible fool gullible fool, yeah you know, which is odd because they hold walter martin in such high regard yeah. and so you know either and, and actually it's quite yeah. the opposite matthew i mean t.e unruh was was an adventist who dialogued with barnhouse and others so so these these conversations both predated um uh you know uh, the whole Frida or whatever that group with, with, uh, and by the way, he wasn't the only one that was there meeting with those right. Adventist church leaders. There's a group of, 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 it's not just Walter Martin. You have Donald Barnhouse. Um, there's three or four of them, depending on which yeah. particular moment. And it's over a series of, of, of months, even over a series of a couple of years that this really takes place. And so, yeah, this is not like someone pulling a fast one right. and uh, on, on this younger fellow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you mentioned Froome a moment ago. I mean, his prophetic faith of our fathers had made an impact mm -hmm. already. You have major yes. evangelicals that are responding to that in a favorable way. You read some of the, the reviews of it. 
And so he was known in that sense. And so that was a part of his experience. He wanted to help others understand what Adventism is all about. So that was a, certainly a motivating factor for him. Yeah. You know, and, and what she misses is the fact that when Martin, Martin was looking for a point of contact at the GC, because he, he, he found these letters that Unruh and Barnhouse had written to each other in years past. And Martin was writing about Seventh-day Adventists in his upcoming book. And so he says, he finds these letters and he thinks, well, maybe, maybe I need to check with them and make sure what I'm about to write about Adventists is in fact what they believe. I want to make sure I get this right. So he, he doesn't know anybody at the general conference, but he saw that Barnhouse, his mentor had written to Unruh. And so he contacts Unruh and says, I would like to talk to Froome. And this is, I think she gets this, Colleen gets this completely backwards because it was Martin who wanted to talk to Froome. It wasn't that the GC selected the other, wasn't the other way around. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> yeah. he had heard of yeah. prophetic faith of our fathers, right? So Martin's like, Froome seems like a pretty knowledgeable guy. I want to talk with him. Now, later, you know, and Froome said, okay, let's also bring in W.E. Reed. And, and Martin said, I'm going to bring George Cannon. You know, so they, it's kind of like a, one of these diplomatic negotiations where each side brings yeah. the same number of people, right, to make sure, I don't know, mm -hmm. we're not outnumbered by anybody else. <laughs> so they each brought two, and then Anderson was later added. They met with Barnhouse later. Even Russell Hitt, who was the editor of uh, Eternity, was added. And, mm -hmm. and so there ended up being about four evangelicals and, and uh, about the same number of Adventists. But the age thing is also what gets me, because Martin was young. He was about 26. But Barnhouse was 55. Uh, George Cannon was a New Testament professor, was in his 30s. The Russell Hitt, the editor of Eternity, was in his 40s. I mean, you can't. They're kind of established uh, scholars and thinkers yes. at this point. Like, even yeah. if they did snow Martin, you think it's going to get past Barnhouse? <laughs> I mean, the guy grew up around Adventists in Mountain View. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they weren't going to say anything that was going to snow him. Yeah. Well, uh, Martin or, was working, working on a doctorate as well. So yes. he was. Yeah certainly uh, sharp at that young age. Sure. Yeah, he'd already and, written several books. And I always like to point people to, to more resources. So our listeners are like, you know, hey, you know, can we, can we take your word for it? Well, um, you know, one of the things I did, in fact, I think this is the first time I met Matthew and Greg, um, was planning a 50th anniversary conference. Because what they did is they came with a list of questions. That's why it's questions on doctrine, right? They came to the Adventist leaders. Here's our list. Are you guys legit? Are you orthodox? I mean, we've kind of got some question marks here. Here's our list of questions. We need to talk about this is this is what we want you to really explain to us, uh, what you believe. And um, there was a 50th anniversary conference. Those recordings are all on the Andrews webpage. You just go to the type in questions on doctrine, Google that with 50th anniversary. And there was, um, there's probably over 30, 35 hours of, of lectures from, you know, from about 20 different major scholars who came together to re reflect in a meaningful way the significance of questions on doctrine, including the nitty gritty and all this little history that we're kind of telling you about here. So that's been described in depth. And kind of the benchmark is Julius Nam wrote a dissertation. Um, now, it's been about 15 years as well. It came out just a short time before. He was a great collaborator on this 50th anniversary conference shout out to my my buddy julius and uh but but needless to say um you can find his dissertation online easily as well and that gives you all the nitty-gritty footnotes and resources and research so you can kind of see how did the whole thing happen and he's dug into the archives adventist archives evangelical archives to find all of this great research 
You know, I think uh, the, the I, I remember going to the QOD conference and what struck me honestly in that whole thing was that the, the, the questions on doctrine book, the process that was gone through with Barnhouse and, and, and Martin, it did not produce um, this cohesive narrative that, that it somehow Tinker seems to indicate was, was what was happening. Um, we, we caused a major theological discussion in Adventism because of this book. Um, I don't, I, I, I felt like when looking at, at, at the Tinker's claim that they, they got together, they handpicked these guys and, and these were the ones that were going to go and, you know, snow the evangelicals. I, I, if that was the case, I don't think, uh, it, it, it did super well because we, we didn't snow our own. We, we, we made a bunch of people mad in Adventism with what we said. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I, I found a, an interesting discussion, just a quick little, uh, piece in, uh, the the comments of a guy named Raymond Cottrell this week, who talked about QOD. He was mm-hmm. he was not part of QOD uh, officially, but he was working on the SDA commentary series back there in the fifties. And he said they were in the middle of volume four, looking at a bunch of different stuff, right in the middle of the discussions with Martin and Barnhouse. And he said that the the editors of the commentary weren't involved directly. Um, but the people that were, and he doesn't name them at that point, he says they didn't have knowledge of the biblical languages themselves. And so they came to us almost daily over a period of months for assistance on a wide range of biblical interpretation. Um, uh, what that again kind of tells me is this handpicked group, you know, that was, that was selected, uh, as according to Tinker, they didn't have all the details. They were, they were touch points for people that knew Adventists. But they themselves weren't necessarily experts in all the levels of biblical scholarship. Um, at least that's the perspective of the other theologians yeah. working at the GC. So, to me, those yeah. those areas, I, I don't think that's necessarily the best perspective on it. No, ne- nor were they specialists in dealing with evangelicals. Uh, right. They just got noticed. I mean, <laughs> by evangelicals. Yeah, yeah, they got noticed. Uh, Froome did. But you know, you, you'll notice as you as you're reading through, as Michael was pointing to Julius Nam's dissertation, as you read through that, you, you realize like they're stumbling their way forward, trying to figure out how do we communicate with these evangelicals in a way that they'll understand or appreciate. Um, yeah, they're, they're, like, it's we, not like we've never really this. Yeah, we've never and, really done this before. Like, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. and but that and that's where Tinker and in, in further statements dis- gives this aura of great deception. And yes. uh, conspiracy, and that the Adventist leaders were trying to deceive Martin and others and give a false impression that Adventists were really Christians. It's interesting on page eight of the original Questions on Doctrine book, uh, they make this statement, which is very insightful. Uh, the goal was to, this is the introduction to Questions on Doctrine, the goal was to set forth our basic beliefs in terminology currently used in theological circles. So they were trying to connect and relate to them. They weren't trying to hide anything, to gloss anything over. Uh, and they go on to say this was not to be a new statement of faith. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure that's, that's my comment there. They, they didn't mean this to be a new statement of faith, but an answer to specific, no, I'm sorry, that is in the quote. Yeah. They wanted it to be an answer to specific questions concerning our faith. So it does. It's not a smooth flowing narrative. It's answering specific questions. Yeah. And and the reality, to me, the reality is, when you are talking to people inside of a church denomination that's had 
a ton of time to enculturate itself and to come up with buzzwords and and phrases that we understand. Sure. You've got to interpret that stuff. You you can't just yep. throw these comments out like SDA, like what they're like, what is that? You know, or haystacks. Like nobody gets these references unless they're in it, just like any right. other group, you know, any other kind of cohesive sure. group of things. I I, I go to a, a non-adventist university. I'm constantly talking to other evangelicals and and Pentecostals explaining various things. They don't they don't understand, you know, when I when I talk about the 2300 days, they're like, "What?" I, but but if I talk about the Sabbath, they're like, "Oh, yeah, okay, we can we can have that touch point there." You have to you have to translate yourself to to people who are not inside <laughs> of a group. Yeah. So if they did come yeah. together to do that, well, that that seems to me like a necessary thing. Well, Greg, she's going to claim, though, that we didn't translate ourselves accurately, that sure. we, we tried to deceive them in their language. And we have a clip of her saying just that right here. Let's hear it. I know Walter Martin didn't fully understand or any of the Christians at the time, but it's what really set Adventism apart. It learned to use normal Christian words about atonement, sacrifice, Jesus, Trinity, um, it, it used normal Christian words, unlike the Mormons who actually admitted they had God the Father and Jesus, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so they were a little more open about their beliefs. So were the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Adventism was truly deceptive. And the longer they existed, the more deceptive they became. Mm -hmm. So that was what really underlay what happened in the 1950s with Walter Martin. He believed their words these people got together and decided they would use vocabulary that would convince Walter Martin that they were truly Christian. But he didn't look under the surface at the roots. And I just want to say, any organization that is founded out of a traditional heresy, such as Arianism or anti-Trinitarianism, and never renounces it, never goes back on it, but just alters the way it talks, it's the root that determines the nature of that organization. Mm. It's not what they say. Okay. So we we learn to use words like atonement, Christian words, as if we had never used those terms before right. that time. Yeah. That's that's quite quite amazing. Uh, and that that's <laughs> just some observations. Uh, as I know, we'll get into specifics here. Um, you know, as I listen to these these guys repeatedly, even on their their website as well, and the presentations that they make, you know, everything is focused on uh, rebutting Adventism, uh, attempting to destroy Adventism, and they repeatedly go back to their own experience when they were Adventist, and we were told this, and we were told that, and we were taught that. You can't trust fully in the cross and Christ came to die so that we can keep the law. And, and, and as you listen to that, the Adventism that they're describing is so foreign from what general Adventism is. Nevertheless, they, do, they are describing um, a form of Adventism that does exist, that's legalistic and perfectionistic. The problem is, is they make their experience of that dysfunctional Adventism as normative for all Adventists. They broad brushed millions of people, because <laughs> there's what, mm -hmm. 21 million Adventists today? Millions of people, they broad brushed mm -hmm. them as 24. legalists, as unchristian. We don't understand the gospel. We're insecure with Christ and, and uh, we keep the law to be saved. And they broad brushed all of us that way. And, and the problem I have most of all is that their 
subjective negative experience with Adventism. And I'm sorry, I get that, that they had, a, you know, they had that legalistic experience and I'm sorry for that. But when they make that normative, their experience normative for all Adventists, that is categorically wrong mm. in so yeah. many ways. And I want to just add to that, Judd, because I, I think there's also a historical dynamic to this kind of thing. So it's like this Adventists were heterodox and kind of try to make themselves cover it up and make themselves look orthodox. But if you go back to early Adventist history, you know, all the way back to the Millerite movement where the atonement was central um, and 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 even just the 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 full trinity the father son and holy ghost now now why did the pioneers not like to use the early sabbatarian adventist pioneers not like to use the word trinity well it had a catholic association and and for apocalyptic and as you know our view of end time events and everything else you can understand why they were resistant or hesitant to use that particular term but then people have said well did they actually believe in the father and the son and the holy ghost you know however you want to describe that but but did they believe in three divine fully divine persons of, of the Godhead, right? And and a, a simple evidence of this is you go back to the first hymnal, James White's um, uh, uh, first hymnal in 1849, right? Um, look at that. And the at the very end is the doxology, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And if you look at the different hymns and all the hymnals in Adventist history, you will see that there are hymns worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And, and what I think is, you know, what I would acknowledge in, in is that, you know, in Adventist history, there have been times where as history has gone along, there's been increasing clarity on theological issues. In the 1870s, 1880s, there's questions about the how, when did Christ begin? When did Christ, you know, was it from all eternity or was he begotten? And that sparked debates that in those that are familiar with Adventist history of 1888 um, on a you know, Ellen White and Jones and Wagner pushing Adventism to a more Christ-centered approach, making sure that in our emphasis on the Sabbath, and we didn't become so legalistic that we left Christ out of the Sabbath and all of our other theology. And that becomes a very important episode. I mean, all of us have taught Adventist history. 1888 is a defining moment where we have to remember. And it's interesting, in the wake of 1888, there's increasing clarity about the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and the origins of Christ, making sure. And then you look through the early 20th century, our fundamental beliefs, we'll talk more about that later, uh, where they're like, you know what, just because other people use the term Trinity, it's not a bad word. And Adventists come to increasingly accept that term. So I don't see that. This is normal for any church, that you have increasing theological clarity yes. as you go along. Yes. But it's difficult for me to say, oh, our, our pioneers were heterodox and did not believe in the full divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Because, um, And I would point to our hymnals as evidence. Now, was it a controversy? Absolutely. Were there debates? Absolutely. But did, did our church pioneers say you know, um, that they did not believe in the full divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's a little bit, that's that's a stretch. That's too much to claim. And I mm -hmm. think there is sufficient evidence that, that shows the other. The other way is being historically compelling as well. I believe we're going to get more into the Trinity in our next episode. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which, because there's some clips that we're going to listen to then, because I've certainly mm -hmm. got some some things to say on that and echo what Michael was saying. And then this, this idea of the physicality of God that Colleen Tinker brings up. That's their big mm -hmm. thing now is the foundation of Adventism is the physicality of God. We'll get into mm -hmm. that in the next episode. I definitely want to have some things to say on that. We all do, of, co of course. But for now, it's, it's focused on this idea, this clip where she describes Adventists as deceptive.
Yes. Uh, let yeah. me springboard that discussion with something very interesting that uh, Colleen and her colleague, her colleague mentioned, uh, is what, the, called the bite, the bite, and this is the cult idea as well, the, the bite model by Steve Hassan, based on his doctoral research. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's an authoritarian, authoritative type of control, and they describe the characteristics, and the bite, of course, is an acronym. And uh, we had alluded to this in our last uh, conversation, last episode, uh, but she uh, gets into it specifically and describes it as, as characteristic of Adventism. And the, the acronym B is for behavior control, and then I is information control, T is thought control, E is emotional control. And so the idea is that as they describe it, their experience in Adventism, they were under absolute control, their behavior, their, the information that the church gives to its people. And it even goes as far as to control thoughts and how we respond to things mm. and what we can discuss and what we can't. And then that involves even emotional control. I mean, it sounds as if Adventism as a whole is like David Koresh in the compound. Yes. You know, where it's absolute, totally uh, control and course this is deceptive and evil and the, the uh, colleen's uh colleague says that you know this is th thinking coming from one group i felt like uh, you know this was uh i was controlled like this yeah. and of course that's the presentation they give to the host and the hosts seem to absorb it and agree and yeah, as Greg said, as Greg said last time, he wished he had that kind of control. Yeah, we do. Now, guys, we I, do not I, have I, that. Yeah, that's I right. can't. That's right. I could that not so convince many of my members to think the way I wanted them to. Like, come on, <laughs> come on, Greg. And by the way, any of us that have done teaching wish we knew how to do a little bit more control, right. right? I mean, if that's the case, guess, have guys, all the, straight the GC students. has failed in letting I've me know been, how that's supposed to be done. So, yeah. Oh, we could rehash. I've, I've been teaching for. Oh my goodness! Uh, college college level for a quarter of a century, twenty five years. I had two of you, two of my distinguished stellar <laughs> students, Michael and Matthew, we were models in my classes. Yeah, sure. Hey, get this, guys! I had you in class twenty plus years ago. Okay, I'm glad you left it at twenty. About twenty plus. Hey, like hey, that. but get this! I was I was a student at Southern 40, 40 plus years ago. So don't <laughs> complain. But. But in my classes, do you ever, you both took Adventist heritage from me. Do you ever remember me trying to control your behavior or try to control your emotions and your thoughts and anything like that? All I remember well, is a green suit on a desk. Okay. Well, I remember you I jumping up and down on a, on a desk and you were so excited. <laughs> and I think you were telling us about how you met Ellen White. <laughs> Please answer the question. No, no, of course not. <laughs> Yes, definitely not. We 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 know you're telling the truth. I would truth have had there, a better so. grade. <laughs> but the point yeah, is, too. you know, this this type of atmosphere, uh, and as we alluded to this in our last discussion, it may exist in some very isolated pockets of Adventism, but as a whole, that's just not reality. Mm -mm. It's not reality at all. And I right. and I honestly don't yeah. think it's ever yeah. been reality because if no. we if we're looking at this claim here that. We were founded on an error. We never refuted it, and we have gotten more deceptive about it ever since then. I I'm sorry that saying that the only people who can be trusted are those who got it all right the first time. And if that's the case, yeah. no Christian group since the disciples should be trusted because they founded themselves <laughs> on an un misunderstanding of Jesus's messiahship. Like uh, we were, we were anti-credal 
for so long. We did we resisted coming up with a set statement of beliefs that was perfectly outlined all the time because we wanted to remain open to the possibility that we would grow in our understanding of things. Yes. And we have. Excellent point. Excellent point. And really quick, and I, because I know we need to keep moving along, but you know, the restorationist movement in the 19th century was, and you mentioned this, Greg, about being anti creedal, but the idea of restoring to the purity of the primitive yeah. church. Now, whether that can be fully achieved or not, but the desire to want to try, right? That's that's what's going on. And there's this attempt to say, hey, we want to follow the Bible as best that we possibly can, live faithfully according to scripture. And that means that we want to make sure that none of these um, corruptions of human humanity that have kind of crept in that let's go back to scripture as our model and Mm -hmm. and and you'll even see this in the early adventist periodicals and you can go to the general conference archives there's literally millions of pages that have been digitized including all of the original periodicals all of ellen white's unpublished writings all this stuff there's nothing hidden you can find it for yourself but but they would even use terms like you know first day of the week instead of instead of Sunday yeah. or second day or whatever, because they're trying to look at that and say, well, you know, those names of the week, they're kind of they're kind of pagan origins. Do we want to use that terminology? Eventually they'll say, you know, it's actually okay. That's kind of, we're not, we're not trying to live separate from our culture. We have to live within our culture. And eventually they come around and say, that's, that's okay. And that's the same sort of phenomena with resisting the term Trinity. Uh, but it, again, just like anything, they grow in their understanding. You see a theological development of, of the pioneers, but it's always Christ-centered and it's always affirming um, the atonement of Jesus Christ, which kind of segues into uh, you know one more clip that I think we're going to listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, let yeah. me make uh, another, just a final comment, mm-hmm. uh, at least from yeah. my perspective about this, this uh, control and deceptiveness. If, if an organization that really wants to ab- exercise this absolute control is this bite uh, describes, um, they, they would not want its members to read outside literature by other Christians. But I think back in the late 1970s, when I began my experience here at Southern, I remember reading books for class like John Stott's Basic Christianity, um, a major evangelical statement on the what the gospel really is. And that book significantly impacted me. And I also remember at seminary, again, this is still 40 years ago, uh, reading books by Wayne Grudem, who's a well-known evangelical today, and Millard Erickson, and another very well-known evangelical who, who teach you know, very Christian evangelical theology. And these were textbooks mm-hmm. uh, that our professors were having us read. And I've done yeah. the same with my own students. I think, Michael, you might remember when you took Introduction to Ministry, I had you read Richard Baxter's The Reformed Pastor, of all things, uh, a long time ago. I see your face is curious. You probably forgot, but yes, I did have you read that. Uh, <laughs> no, not only did I read that book, but because you tantalized me, I had to buy all of all of his other books, too, and became a Puritan fanatic. <laughs> there um, you go. Then well, I, I, I blame you. I blame you for that. I will take full credit for it. But an organization that wants to really control is not going to have, if Adventism wanted us to believe just a very narrow view, there's no way we would be reading what other Christians have to say. But that's very common in all the classes of my colleagues and all the years that I've taught and and then as a student in Adventism. So so this idea of deceptive, um, secretive, 
uh, absolute control. It just doesn't exist. We're, we're, we're bad at it because if that's the way it went, none <laughs> of the other pastors that I disagree with definitively on any theological yeah. topic were trained very well. <laughs> you put your fingers to your head and yeah. just try to mind mind control the them. fact that that unfortunately <laughs> Tinker had that experience with a very conservative group of Adventists tells me yeah. we don't all have a standard narrative. Yeah. By the way, even questions on doctrine, M. L. Andreas and oh, will yeah. not like he comes from the very perfectionist. He's the epitome of last generation theology, having to be perfect so Christ can come. And of course, he just flips out. When when questions on doctrine, all of this takes place. He's like, well, and 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 you know, he led a significant opposition within the church um, opposing what happened with the whole QED saga, sure. and that shows you the dynamics and the fluidity uh, of of thought and ideas in Adventism, even in the wake of of the nineteen. We are not homogenous. Doctrine. <laughs> yes, I was going to say mm -hmm, that. This is mm -hmm. this is what I think people outside of Adventism, even within Adventism, need to understand. The Millerite movement out of which Seventh-day Adventism eventually came was a coalition. It, it was not a creedal movement. You know, Miller, of course, was a Baptist, but there's people from all denominations in that mix. And, mm -hmm. and early Seventh-day Adventism definitely reflected that. Like, we, we didn't sit down and say, let's just hammer out a systematic theology mm -mm. and get all this down. We don't have, we, to this day, we don't have a systematic theology. I mean, there's books on it, but we we don't have one. I mean, sometimes people visit my church and they're like, what's the Adventist view of Zechariah? You know, pick a couple chapters. It's like, we don't have an Adventist view <laughs> on, on most chapters in the Bible. There are Adventist views on many, on most things. And then there's some things that we hold in common that we try to kind of keep keep to uh you know keep keep centered on but for everything else there's many avenues views and so you know I, I don't know i think i i think if the last thing i'll say about this is this and then greg you can go uh chime in but the thing is she's she's colleen and nikki are trying to indicate that adventism is hiding its arian or semi-arian past and again this mm -hmm. is Dr. Mm -hmm. Lake said we're going to talk about that in the next episode go to any Adventist church and ask the members there whether they believe Jesus was a created being. I, this is my challenge. Any Seventh-day Adventist church in the world, and I guarantee you a vast majority are some form of Trinitarian. I mean, they may not, I say some form because they may not call themselves Trinitarian, but they are when you examine them. They, they may not mm -hmm. like the word, I guess is what I'm saying, because some Adventists are still a little allergic to that word. They prefer the Godhead or whatever it may be, but 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 most Adventists today are going to be they're going to look at you funny because yeah. <laughs> because because that's just not who we are, and 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 we haven't been that way for a long time. Doctor Campbell mentioned M. L. Andreas and protesting QOD. You know what he didn't protest? The Trinity. <laughs> yeah, that's true. true. In fact, Andreas liked most of Questions on Doctrine. Yes, yeah. just a few small places he profoundly disagreed. All right, great. Last I, by the way, that's the deception stuff. And that's the challenge that Judd was mentioning earlier about uh, the whole thing about uh, some Adventist views, not reflecting the views that you're familiar with, you know. And there have been some Adventists that have pushed in a different direction in terms of perfectionism and a more legalistic kind of Adventism. Um, and Adventism's big enough that, that there are people that uh, 
you know, may be more legalistic, but that doesn't represent at the Adventism I'm familiar with mm-hmm. or Adventism mm-hmm. at its best, as I like to describe it. So mm-hmm. I remember a quote from Miller in the first like Millerite general conference. There was a lot of people coming up to him and, and demanding, what is your stance on on annihilationism or what is your stance on this or that other theology? And Miller said, we are not talking about that right now. We have an urgent thing right here, right now that has to be focused on, and that's the second advent. That's all we're going to focus, and we're going to just assume that when Jesus comes back in a few years, it's all going to get worked out on all these other details, but that's our monofocus. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that Adventism has has taken on that similar DNA, because in the earliest days, we also had this urgency to our message that said, we may not have all these other things figured out totally, but we're going to focus on a couple of fundamentals that we think are most important for the end times that we're living in. And I think that that may have also contributed to our messy stance on other basic Christian doctrines. We didn't get to some of that stuff until later in our history, and so we're still kind of working through some of it as it goes, but we focused on certain things we felt were most urgent. And I, and yeah. I think that explains a little bit, at least, of our our sometimes messy history on theology. Yep, yep. All right, let's mm-hmm. go to a, a third clip I want to play. In this clip, we have one of the co-hosts of the Cultish podcast reading part of a, one of the 28 fundamental beliefs. This is going to be fundamental beliefs number 19. And he's basically saying it actually sounds pretty orthodox. And he's going to ask, he's going to ask the two ladies, Colleen and Nikki, to explain why it's not orthodox. So here he is. Um, so, so help help me explain uh, this for me then, because if I look at the twenty eight articles right of the SDA uh, Church, one of them says number nineteen. It says salvation is all of grace and not of works, and its fruit is obedience to the commandments. This obedience develops Christian character and results in a sense of well being. It sounds like Orthodox Christian belief, even some of the verses that are being cited here. But what do they really mean? Mm-hmm. I'll just in general address this mm-hmm. when he's when they say they're saved by grace and that i don't remember the exact wording but the idea is that it bears the fruit of you know good deeds of of righteousness or law keeping the understanding for an adventist is the fruit of being saved by grace is keeping the ten commandments Mm-hmm. And that requires the fourth Saturday Sabbath. So if you're not doing that, you're not showing the fruit. And then the saved by grace thing, that is not what Christians mean. For an Adventist to say we're saved by grace, they, they generally mean it's not ever well defined to an Adventist, ever. But what they mean is Jesus was so gracious that he came down and died a representative death to show us what God's judgment on sin would look like. What? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what, what I, I mean by too. just <laughs> representing their own experiences, all of Adventism. I know those types of people. <laughs> yeah. I know those types of pastors. I had one down the road. A lady comes to my church during an evangelistic meeting, wants to get baptized, but she meets with me later and she's like, Pastor, I can't because because I can't give up Dr. Pepper. I was like, what? And I was like, she's like, no, but the last church I was at, you know, the, this other Adventist group down there, they said, until I give up Dr. Pepper, I can't go to heaven. I'm going to go to hell and I just can't do it, Pastor, so I'm sorry. I 
I, those guys are out there talking like this and I agree, yep. but yep. that's not yeah. standard Adventist theology. No, it's, it's no, fundamentalism this, and, and it's not something we started. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, that came from the conservative evangelical fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. So you it's like, us come on, come thing. on, don't blame us yep, for, yep, yep, for yep. something. And by the way, just a little uh, self-promotional shout out. If you never heard about fundamentalism and Adventism, 1919, 1922. <laughs> just saying that yeah, there were good books. books. They're good books. Somebody wrote books yeah. on that subject. I don't. I don't really? know. They're, you they're know, trying to, trying to imitate their professor or something. I don't know. <laughs> they're actually pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty good books. In fact, yeah, excellent. Let me books. connect the dot in there too somewhere. I'm gonna go hide now. Look, All right. If you watch this further, this guy, uh, this particular host, there's another part yeah. where they're had the the camera is on his face. And I, I really enjoy it. I like him. I like them both. Um, but he's he's listening to this narrative that Colleen Tinker is feeding him. And it's just the stuff he's hearing. He's like, his face is like contorted. He's like thinking. You can tell he's thinking, this is insane. This is crazy. This is sick. Uh, and I don't blame him. If I it were is. hearing the same stuff he was hearing, I would be thinking the same thing, that these Adventists are really messed up. But yeah, again, he is, he was fed a false narrative. Uh, what they do is put the most, um, the worst exaggeration or the most, put it this way, the most exaggerated interpretation, the most exact negative exaggerated interpretation of what Adventists believe on any topic. And they take any biblical topic that we believe and make it sound so unorthodox, so unchristian, so cultish, mm -hmm. so so crazy, and it's no small wonder he was contorted with his face. Like, what is wrong with yeah. these people? At one point, I remember toward the end, he burst out in frustration when they were talking about Ellen White. He said, "I don't need anybody else, but just the Bible. The Bible's all I need." And I'm like, "Amen, brother. I agree." <laughs> but you've got you've been fed a false narrative of what Adventists believe. You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, I remember going as a, as a young pastor to ministerial meetings with clergy from other denominations, right? And I remember feeling very frustrated, and I told a story about a legalistic church member that was really struggling with their faith and so on. And, and I just remember two other pastors, different denominations, and they just said to me, Michael, you don't have, you don't have uh, a lock on all the legalistic church members that are out there. They're, we have some too. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't invent legalism, so, people. We didn't invent legalism. So do we experience yeah. it in an Adventist context? Absolutely. Are we, uh, we're certainly... Uh, but we're, and we're not immune to it. Right. I mean, so right. we have had um, bouts of legalism or legalistic members, both individually or even historically times that tended to be more legalistic. That's why we already talked about 1888, why 1888 is an important part of our Adventist history. Because in the way the whole reason I teach that is to emphasize and remind my students and my my members, you know, in, in our history, that there's been times when we've been not as Christ centered as we need to be in Adventism. And I keep coming back to this to this is at its best when we keep uh, Christ at the center of what Adventism's all about. Do we do it perfectly all the time? No, and I'd even confess. I have I know I haven't done it perfectly, but it's something we strive for, right? So we we want to keep Christ at the heart and center. And the other thing I would just want to mention really quickly, I've taught world religions before and and 
not just other Christian denominations, but other major world religions. And I, I used to like to use this term holy envy, right? So, because I wasn't trying to get my students, you should convert and become a Hindu or a Buddhist or whatever else, but to increase religious literacy and say, well, what can we appreciate the best, not from the critics who are trying to tear down, but the best of each major world religion, um, let's appreciate denominations at their best, not their worst, right? Sure. And 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 so holy envy takes a, a a view of respect, okay? So so let's let's argue and and disagree, but not with not Adventism in its divergent forms or where you know we have fallen short or maybe legalistic, but let's let's take Adventism at its best. And it's okay to disagree and say, whatever, you know, that's why we have lots of different views, um, both within and even people outside the church who choose to remain outside of the church. And that's fine too, but let's, let's assume the best, not the worst. Well, <laughs> even you mentioned Adventism at its best, I would say even Adventism as it is. Okay. So mm -hmm. I don't know if, if they want, let's go get out the phone, do a little live video call. I'll give you access to five, 10, 15 church members. You ask them, what does it mean to be saved by grace? Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, we have some knuckleheads in this congregation, just like every other congregation who, uh, who might, who might have fun with that. But I, I think you're going to get an Orthodox Christian answer. It's not like on what yeah. basis do they say that when we say saved by grace, we mean something different than the rest of Christian, than mm -hmm. the rest of Christianity, mm -hmm. like prove it. Don't just say it on a yeah, on a show. Yeah, yeah. Prove it. Where are we being right. deceptive when we talk about being saved by grace? In fact, yeah. I thought when they read our our fundamental belief, you know, they they read it very well and they said we're saved by grace. Da 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 da. And then the fruit of that salvation is in obedience to God. And and they didn't have a problem with that. The the cultish host didn't have a problem with that. But then when when Colleen was responding to that, she said, well. You know, when they say saved by grace, it means keeping the Ten Commandments. Like, no, 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 no. It, the, the fundamental belief made it abundantly clear the whole keeping the Sabbath thing is a fruit of our salvation. It's not a root of our salvation. The, like, it, the fundamental belief gets it correct. And then she says, well, actually, it's the opposite. She reinterprets it. Yeah, I mean, she, she says she can't believe them there. for what they say, which is frankly to me theological gaslighting. Shh, shh. You can't believe what they're actually telling mm, you. Here's yep, what I'm telling yep, you they mean. Yep. Mercy. That's not yes, fair. In a marriage, you're going to have a divorce attorney saying that's not okay. <laughs> you can't say he said that if that's not what he's saying. Boy, this sounds really fresh, Greg. <laughs> well, I'm I'm just following the trail. <laughs> she she comes across interestingly as the infallible interpreter of what Adventists believe. Yeah, and that, yeah, and 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 yeah, you know, uh, and you know, if I've been an Adventist now, uh, not all my life, but almost fifty years, and I have always understood grace as a young believer and now a theologian for the church. I have always understood grace as unmerited favor, unmerited grace. Yeah, uh, saved by what Christ has done, not by what I do. But as a result of that gracious salvation, I want to render good works of obedience. As you sure. well said, the, 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 the root is justification. The fruit is sanctification. That's, that is the gospel is there. I've taught the gospel all of my uh, career. And uh, for her to say that I mean something else by grace yeah. is just not, it's not right and fair. But what, what they are doing, they, they're on a big campaign 
to reinterpret our fundamental beliefs. They have a whole series of a podcast on Adventist fundamental beliefs. Not cultish. And, You're talking uh, about the ministry that. No, not cultish. Excuse me. Yes, I'm, I'm back to proclamation. To yes, proclamation. Nikki, their their organization, uh-huh. and uh, the Seventh Day Adventist Belief book, the exposition of the fundamental beliefs. They that that's what they're this book here. That's what they're All reading right. from and and interpreting in it, and they're and it they're putting their own interpretation on it, mm-hmm. and saying that well. In there, we talk about salvation. As the, as the host said, it sounds like Orthodox Christianity. And if you right. read it, while it has unique Adventist beliefs, it's clearly in harmony with basic evangelical principles of salvation and yep. Christianity. But what they are doing is putting an extreme negative interpretation on it to make it to put it in the worst possible light, to make it look as legalistic and and, and in the places where we have the are very clear on the gospel. Well, they can't accept that, and so uh, we don't mean that. We don't mean what they say. Right. So they're taking meaning out of sentences, taking meaning out of the words. It's almost like the uh, contemporary postmodern. I know postmodernism is shifting, but the postmodern reader response: you, the, the the reader, decides what the final meaning is. But when when they do, when if they say that that the fundamental belief exposition doesn't mean what it says, well, guess what? what they say they don't mean what right. they're saying or they don't mean what they're saying either they take meaning out of every every real linguistic statement yeah yep. and uh that's that's a mistake yeah, it is you know, so a- we need to read read our beliefs in their context and like the host said when you do that it's clear it's basic christianity yep it i is. i find it interesting in the discussion of grace you know being saved by grace and what you know we're reinterpreting what we mean by that i i i also get this sense that there is a, a a belief within the discussion that being right theologically is going to be tied to your salvation. Mm. And the fact that Adventists aren't right about this makes them less than trustworthy. I, I'm sorry. I think a lot of Christians have been working through a lot of different ideas for centuries, and maybe some of us back then didn't have it right. And maybe we keep growing into that. Maybe the Baptists yeah. don't have it all right. Maybe we, I mean, I I can't say that a person who doesn't have it all lined up perfectly theologically is, is, is a less of a Christian saved by grace than the person who believes that they are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you notice guys in that, in that clip, she insinuates when she's describing what Adventists believe that we believe Jesus is our, died as our representative to show us, I guess, how we could get victory over sin. She avoided acknowledging that Adventists see Jesus is dying uh, a substitutionary death. Yes, yes. She says that uh, that Jesus was so gracious, she said, that, that he died a representative death to show us what God's judgment on sin would look like. That's what she said. And I, I'm just curious. I don't know where she gets that from. That's, to me, that's Andreasen. Believe in a substitutionary that's, death. Ellen White was has been very clear about that. That's the sanctuary service by Andreasen, all the way back to the 40s, right? Yeah, I mean that's Andreasen saying he's sure. a he's an example keep, for us to show yeah. us how yeah. to do he, this. And I think that's the Adventism they can out of is the Andreasen. Right. Yeah, mm. the last generation theology perfectionism. That's, that's and, what it is, and that's what they're reacting to. And I think that's important that we note that that that's not very important. You know, yeah. Yep. I mean, Ellen White. I mean, number of times. Uh, I'll just give one example from Review and Herald, June 20, 1893. Says Jesus has borne the sins of the whole world. He suffered as man's substitute and surety. 
And that's often how she refers to Jesus, substitute and surety. I, I don't, I mean, it's not just our example, but our substitute, and, and that's what matters. Now, if they had an experience in a particular brand of Adventism, a congregation or a subculture of Adventism that was different than that, well, then that's not Adventism as a whole's fault. It's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, tremendously unfortunate. But I, I suppose once you've come out of that, there's got to be an obligation to look soberly at the Adventist landscape and realize, okay, I came out of this theological cave <laughs> in this corner of Adventism, and maybe even be a big corner in, in some parts of the country of Adventism. But I recognize that that's not the whole. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, how do you read these quotes from Ellen White and, and conclude otherwise? I mean, over and over and over again, she calls Jesus our substitute. And, and so I just think at some point, um, we, 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 have, we still have empathy for what folks have gone through in the Adventism or the Christianity they were raised in, if it, if it wasn't up to snuff. But, but there's got to be a moment where you're obligated to, to tell the truth about your past and, and about Adventism. And there's just so many Ellen White quotes, other quotes as well, about Jesus dying as our substitute, not merely an example. And and one ought to know better, I should think. Uh, Michael, um, there was this book written some oh my time goodness. ago. It's not quite as good as 1919 and 1922. All right, but, I'll, I'll give you but, that one. I'll give you that one. You are my student. The student has surpassed the teacher. Oh, okay? so no, no, no. The, the Ellen White under fire is fire. It's fire. Also oh, great color fire. pages in there. I, I, yeah. I wrote this book 13 years ago. It was published 13 years ago from this recording, the time of this recording now. And I actually was responding to things Colleen Tinker was saying back then in writing. And okay. I respond to the same thing, this, this issue that of the substitutionary atonement. And if I may, let me just summarize something that I, I say here. On, this is on page 229 in my book. I go through all the theories. my favorite the author. Yeah. 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 I, go, I go through the theories of the atonement, the example theory, moral influence theory, governmental theory, victory, ransom theory, penal substitution theory, and describe each one. And, and Ellen White clearly was somewhat eclectic. But one, she fell on repeatedly, and it became her foundational view of the atonement. While she had a broader view, yes, which we'll talk about when we get into this, I think that's in the next episode, but she clearly fell heavily on the penal substitutionary atonement. And Matthew just quoted a great mm-hmm. statement there. Just they abound in her writings, but in Desire of Ages, in Desire of Ages, where that chapter where she's describing Christ's death on the cross in such a moving way. Here's some select statements that you can see the substitutionary nature of, of her understanding of the atonement coming out here. She describes that when he was on the cross, languishing in pain, she said it was the sense of sin, the bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute. Another mm-hmm. place, she said, it is for thee that the Son, she's writing, speaking to the reader, it is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. I'm just pulling selected statements from this page of, of this long statement. And then he offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice, and this from love to thee. He, the sin-bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice, and for thy sake becomes sin itself. That's pages 753, 755, 756, and deserve ages for those who want to see it for themselves. Mm-hmm. The whole section is saturated 
with the substitutionary understanding of Christ's death on the cross. So Ellen White taught this in some of her most well-known popular books, clearly, explicitly, and abundantly uh, on this matter. And it's all throughout her writings. And Advent, I, I have trumpeted the cross repeatedly, as so many preachers have done, so many teachers and colleagues in the classroom and in the pulpit, the, the, the merits of Christ. Now, uh, let me unashamedly advertise that in my next Ellen White podcast, the next episode, it's a bonus episode, All right. and it'll be out March 5. 10. All right. Not too long. Oh, is it March 10? Okay, March, March 10. 10. And That's right. Excuse me. March 10. You're the boss. March 10. <laughs> And, and in that, I am, dis- I am discussing Ellen White, salvation and assurance, what she said about those subjects, about Christ's death on the cross, about the assurance the Christian can have, the assurance that she had in her own life, her own life because of what Christ had done for her. So I, I go for like 45 minutes on that. So that is coming March 10. All right. We're looking forward to it. I want to move to the last clips, these two I'm going to play consecutively because we're moving from the 1950s even further back in time to the early days of the Sabbatarian Adventist movement, specifically the comments that they made on the relationship between James and Ellen White. And I want to get you guys' thoughts on that. This is what they say. Ellen White, who was a visionary, and James White married her mostly because her visions promoted Um, He gave him something to sell, something to attract the people. Her visions became a means of actually money-making because he could sell them and attract a following. Ellen White, unlike what most Christians think, is not the sole founder. She was one of three primary founders, and she was not the mover and shaker. She was like the cash cow because she had the visions. Well, I was always brought up never to insinuate a woman was a cow, (laughs) uh, cash or otherwise. Uh, but leaving that aside, <laughs> it, hey, she's it, a woman. She can do it. That's a Midwest I, I thing, guess. man. Women call other women cows. I, I don't know. I'm not getting into that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, 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 the accusation here is that in the first clip was that James White married Ellen White, <laughs> not for her money, but for her visions, because he could monetize those like he's a modern day influencer. Right. What do you guys think about that? Is that true? If it was, they didn't succeed very well. <laughs> if you look at their financial records and the various debts that they accrued over the time, they did not seem to work out. And they should have taken some some uh, lessons from Joseph Smith or something. I mean, come on. Well, and, and by the way, I, I mean, I think you have to look at this too. You know, right afterwards, it's it's really um, at least two more decades before James Allen White get more firmly financially established, shall we say, yeah. right? I think I think most people can empathize with that. You know, start out young in love. The James and Ellen are broke, and they're broke for a number of years to come, and they're just barely eking out a survival. But by the 1870s, and James White dies in 1881, um, James is doing a bit better, right? I mean, he's, he's uh, figured out, you know, how to do some entrepreneurial things, take some cows on a cattle train from Texas up to uh, Kansas City, <laughs> make some money off of that, take some silver across the country and finds out it's more valuable on the other side, you know, and paper's cheaper on the other side of the country. And he can 
uh, do some importing, exporting. And so that's really when there's some accusations like, ah, James White. Now, not so much about his wife's visions, but that he's doing entrepreneurial things on the side, that he's making a little bit too much money and therefore getting rich off of his position too, right? Mm -hmm. So that there's this idea that um, and, and here's the thing is, is he was investigated again and again and again, because critics were alleging even back then, oh, you know, where's that money coming from? Right. And, um, and then having to be exonerated again and again and again, it's getting rather laborious and wearisome, but, but, but yeah, there's, there's kind of, this is where the whole auditing thing comes in, right. You know, is, is, are they getting rich? And so then the question is, where, what are they doing with the money that once James has several of these financial ventures and buys and sells some houses and stuff like that, uh, what, what's he do with that money? Well, they invest it back into the church, yeah. you know, and that's, that's, that's really what's phenomenal. Of course he dies. And then the question is Ellen White, you know, Ellen, you've got this house in Healdsburg, you know, and now you're going overseas as a missionary. What are you doing with that? And I had a lot of fun last summer digging into the Healdsburg, St. Helena, into the archives, found the original financial records. This is this is pretty cool. They let me actually dig down in the basement and get into the closet and find all this stuff on dusty shelves. I found the old Ellen White's original financial records from the uh, early 1880s, right? Mm -hmm. And and um, she actually still had that house that, that James had bought that they had in Healdsburg and then a small little cottage by the sanitarium and what have you. Um, Ellen, Ellen was trying to make good use of her money, just like any normal person would, you know, I have a little extra, that's her life savings retirement, right? And what is she doing with that extra money, right? She goes to Europe, she rents out the house, what she use that extra money for? Well, she's sponsoring people to get an Adventist education there at Healdsburg College. And I think that's just really cool, because um, for, for much of their lives, they financially struggled. And then when at a point in their life, when they did have a little bit extra, they gave back to the church, they reinvested it in Adventist young people and stuff like that. So, um, and that's not the kind of financial records that anybody really, you know, I've, I'm just looking through old sanitarium, dusty minutes and stuff like that. And, and then come across um, some of the financial records of Ellen White in the early, early 1880s uh, that that I think reveal that she was who she claimed she was, you know, she's not trying to live large off of Adventism, but that she was a genuine, authentic Christian. And, um, and when she did have the little extra, she gave back to the church and reinvested it um, into sharing the Adventist message. And I, I think that's just a beautiful thing. Um, she was who she claimed to be in terms of uh, how she used her finances, just like anybody. Um, but, but that she was a real genuine Christian when it came to to money matters, yeah, and you know, Michael, you you are the Indiana Jones of Adventist researchers. <laughs> I mean, I need a different hat. You come up with, hey, this guy is texting us stuff he gets from the archives. You, <laughs> oh my you goodness, are quite impressive man. all he, the time. He says when he says he goes and research hey, things in the archives, <laughs> he is telling the truth and. He is coming out with all kinds of historical yep. gems, and you heard a little bit of it there. So thanks for that. <laughs> hey, by the way, any listeners, if you have some historical gems, <laughs> you just reach out to Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, yeah. and we're going to come visit, and, we will come and we'll to go into you. attics or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just, just but, a little but shout I had out a thought, there. But, but Matthew, you, you, you had chimed in. Why don't you go first, and then I'll go after you. Oh, thank you. I, you know, the only thing I was going to say is, you know, if if – James's goal was to make money off Ellen White, then having a multi-year policy when he was editing his papers 
of not printing her visions was a really weird policy. Yeah. If your goal is to make money off of them, you know, for those of guys who, who aren't aware, in the early 1850s, James didn't want to print Ellen White's visions, which surely made dinner conversations uh, interesting in the White home. But the, the point was, is he wanted to explain that Adventism in, in all of its theological beliefs rested on the Bible and not on visions. This was an accusation, of course, that happened, that came very early on. And so he just printed all these Bible reasons for why Adventists believe what they believe and, and not what his wife saw in vision. So, so that people would understand that it's a, it's a Bible-based faith. And again, if, if his goal was to make money off of her visions, if he was just kind of mercenary like that, then why do that policy? Then, then why refuse to print her visions? And as uh, Michael was talking about, yeah, he printed hymnals. <laughs> he printed, he, he bought and sold things. Like James White was a hustler and a serial entrepreneur. I mean, the guy, you know, people in. like that. Everybody knows people like that who can, you know, you, you know them in high school. Like they take a, they find a pen somewhere and they're like, you know, I bet I could find a kid who needs this pen. And then when they sell it to him for some lunch money or something, I mean, they just, I have family members like that. I mean, we all know somebody like that. It doesn't mean that they're 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 a bad person or whatever. It's just how they're gifted. It's how their mind works. They're always looking for that kind of next next thing that we can do to make some money. Of course, they, we, we want to make sure that they do it ethically. And as Michael pointed out, James people had those questions about James. They looked into how James spent money, and um, and and that was that. I mean, he had some accountability. But anyways, Judd, go ahead. Um, oh, good point. Uh, Michael, you, you know, you're the expert in, in, uh, or as I said, the Indiana, Indiana Jones of finding things in the archives and research. Uh, I, I'm lazy. I read PhD theses. All right. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I actually was on, uh, an external examiner for, uh, doctoral defense, uh, this last summer, a year ago. And it was a PhD thesis on the marriage of James and Ellen White by a Brazilian scholar. And, uh, reading through that thing, it was just, it was well done, well researched and, and, uh, gained a lot of insights, uh, that I hadn't seen before in going through that. And it covers some of this material. Uh, but I think you covered it good about the finances, Michael. But one point I'll bring out is Nikki is, was describing at one point in the, uh, conversations, how she and Colleen went to the Battle Creek village and they went into the whites home and they, they, she yeah. and her daughter especially observed that Ellen White had this big room. James and Ellen had different rooms That's and right. Ellen had this big, nice room. And James had this tiny little place in the corner and it was, and the, and it was cast in such a way as that, you know, Ellen is the special one and James was put away in this little corner, but that was quite typical in, in, in 19th century marriages, uh, out of convenience, especially Ellen needed a larger room because she was engaged in writing. And she would rise at 3 a.m. in the morning. James had to do a lot of work during the day, heavy work, and, and he needed a good night's rest. All he needed was a simple room to sleep in. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it makes perfect sense that he had the smaller room and she had the larger room to get up and maneuver and, and to do writing. And in 19th century Victorian marriages, this, this was often common to sleep in separate rooms, uh, not in every way. And, and you read that it... Uh, they were often uh, affectionate, and she would go to his room before going to bed and, and kiss him good night. All right, all right. All there right. were nights when they slept together, it's and getting a little and much. Then, you right. know, now I'm not. I'm just. I'm not saying anything other than simple facts. 
Uh-huh. You guys are just reading stuff into it. Just calm your minds, okay? Uh, but but <laughs> Ellen did sh- say that she missed her visits from James. So <laughs> there you go. And they had four children. So let's just leave it alone, okay? Um, you, but you the point that is Pandora's that, box, Jed. <laughs> yeah, that that it was cast in such a a negative way when uh, reality was so different. Um, yeah. And so that's the reason for the small room and the big room and, and so forth. I, you know, I, I hear you. I think you're totally right there, Judd. And I, what I hear in this accusation of she was the cash cow, she was the one, that is a view of Ellen White that is coming through much later after she is gone. The idea that her visions were somehow this huge positive moneymaker would not necessarily have been true of that in the mid 1800s. People who had visions necessarily weren't out there making big bucks. They were usually getting uh, chastised and, and castigated by the larger Christian populace. Yeah. The the, the mm-hmm. accusation that this was a moneymaker, I first heard it or read it, at least in Prophetess of Health, that this idea that Ellen White was just utilizing all these things to to grow some larger empire of, of, of wealth and influence, I, I, I don't see that in her lifetime so much, but I do see that as she's used or thought of in later years um, as a very strong foundational element of, of Adventist theology. Uh, but that's, yeah. that to me is a much later development. Hence the view of she's a much, mm-hmm. she's a cash cow. Mm-hmm. And by the way, on the homes, there's been research done, papers written on the homes of Ellen, James and Ellen White, a book written about it. And none of these, these dwellings were really rich. Yeah. Uh, that's again, that's the, impression that Nikki gave is that this had to do with wealth and arrogance and it just their homes were modest homes and they always had people there they they let orphans live with them and and friends and they help people out uh there was no luxury there at all yeah one of my favorite anecdotes is where ellen white is is talking about how there i think there was like 26 people over for for supper the night before you know kind of thing so it's kind of people are constantly coming and going it's it's a kind of a hub of activity but 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 they were very generous and and what they did have Mm -hmm. and both in terms of their hospitality and their modesty in terms of uh their home so well you know i I think we've covered a lot of ground here in this Mm -hmm. this episode you know we've we've had some clips kind of try to explain some more research resources um we'll try to put those in the show notes as well so that those of you that kind of want to say hey you know um you know, we're, we're listening to you, but we want to dive and kind of look at it for ourselves. And that's what we want you to do. That's our goal is is look at the original sources. Check it out for yourself because um, we think there's a lot more to the story. And and that's kind of what Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast is all about. This part of this Adventist History uh, Podcast Network as we've been kind of trying to dive in is is we're trying to look at what's, what's the rest of the story, diving and digging deeper. And uh, so... We just want to thank you for listening to this this episode, and uh, this is not it. We're going to dive in some more, so stay tuned. Come back uh, for uh, next month's episode. We're going to be looking a little bit more about the Trinity and uh, the Atonement, some of these issues in a little bit more uh, depth. And so uh, this is Adventist Pilgrimage Podcast, and uh, your hosts, uh, Michael Campbell, Greg Howell, and we've had the pleasure of having Judd Lake and Matthew Lucio. So thanks for joining us and uh, come on back for another episode each and every month, first of the month. And Jesus himself said that he did not come to do away with the law. God, God. 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 God.